Welcome back to the show. Time for my favorite catchphrase. This is one of my absolute favorite parts of the work I do and of the new book. And it's all about the stories we tell. It's the S in the transform in the second section of the book. What would you say if I told you that the vast majority of your life is make-believe? It just doesn't exist. Would you be shocked? Would it destabilize you? Would you say, Paul, you're insane? Well, the truth is that the vast majority, the 99.9% .9 of what we experience, everything you've experienced up until now is a story. They are stories that you tell yourself about the past and stories you tell yourself about the future. The author Eckhart Tolle, or Eckhart Tolle, I never know how to say his name, wrote a book called The Power of Now. And the premise of that is basically that the only thing that's real is what you're experiencing right now. And as I was thinking about that, as I've done all the work I've been doing over the past few years, I came to think, I actually think you need to go a step further in this day and age. And I talk about the power of here and now because we can be in the present moment. We can be experiencing what we're experiencing right now, but because of technology, because of social media, because of video calls, we can be experiencing something in another place. So it can be, if, if it's not right in front of us right now, we can never be sure that what we're experiencing is actually real. And even with that, now, these days, we're experiencing everything through the lens of all the stuff we've already talked about. So everything from your childhood, everything that you believe about the world up to this point, you see the world through your own eyes, through your own lens, and we filter everything through that. So the whole point of this section of this part of the work I do, the work I've done on my own life, and I do with people all around the world when I coach them, is to start asking yourself and asking ourselves what's true. And we live in a very unusual time in human history when this work actually is way more powerful and helps a lot more than it might ever have done in the past to make sense of things. So when I say to people now and I talk about what is true, there's I did an episode on this last year actually, which I'll link to at the end. It might be worth watching or listening to that as well on top of this one. As, as ever, repeating this to infinity will always help, going over and over it, thinking about it more and more, because it's often new things we're thinking about, things we've never thought about in the past. So we start off with what is true. And I like to simplify everything, as you've probably seen, if you've watched or listened to any of these in the past. And I like to boil things down to, to this. When I was in school, I was a big maths fan. I was really good at maths. It all made perfect sense to me. Maths is black and white. So Two plus two equals four is true. That makes absolute sense to everybody if we work on the basis that that is absolute truth. Although, as I said this to someone last year sometime, they said to me, there's actually a theory that even that isn't entirely true. But we're down enough rabbit holes for now. We can, we can park that one for the time being and say, look, for the sake of this conversation, two plus two equals four is true. That is true. That's the ultimate test. Where do we go from there? Well, the downside of that is that that's maths and the life we live, the world we live in, isn't maths. It's not black and white. And yet the societies we've built, everything you watch on TV, on social media, listen to on the radio, you are likely without realizing it to have been encouraged your entire life to think of things in black and white terms. So we are, we are all encouraged to use black and white thinking for everything as examples, politics, 
If you're in the UK, you're either Conservative or you're Labour. If you're in the US, that's Republican or Democrat, whatever the parties are in your country, right wing, left wing, good or bad, black or white, literally everything separated into two categories. We are told and we are led to believe that two things cannot exist at the same time. The first thing to do as we start doing all this work is to start realizing that that is usually bullshit. Often things can exist at the same time and the division, we could get really deep down rabbit holes for the purpose of this conversation. We'll try not to, I'll try to stick to the, to the main point. The purpose of this work is to start identifying that we don't have to choose. We can be more fluid in our thinking. And so what I like to do instead of black and white thinking is to encourage something I call scaled thinking, which I apply to my own life now. I encourage everyone I coach to do the same thing. I'll encourage you to do the same thing. So from now on, rather than see things as one thing or the other, think of everything as existing on a scale from zero to 100. So whatever it is, it doesn't matter what it is. It exists from zero to 100. So let's go back to truth. What is true? Well, let's say on a scale, zero is it's absolutely false. It's a lie. And a hundred is it's absolutely true. So we start off with, for the sake of argument, two plus two equals four is absolutely true. That is 100 out of 100 on the scale. How do we apply that in our lives? Well, from now on, we can gently start asking ourselves, going back to previous episodes by taking responsibility and at the same time being kind, is this thing I think about myself or about the world around me absolutely true? Is it 100 out of 100 on the scale? And when we can make inquiries about that, be curious, be open-minded, try and zoom out from whatever it is we're looking at, try and be objective. We will often find that whatever it is we think about, whatever our opinion is, again, going back to previous episodes, it's an opinion, not my opinion. If we can hold it loosely like that, if it's, it's not 100 out of 100, then at least in some part, it's a story we're telling ourselves. And as soon as we can accept that something is a story that we're telling ourselves, we can start unpicking it. Because ultimately, going back to the start, it's then just make-believe, to some extent at least. So obviously something might be 90 out of 100 on the scale of truth, and therefore it's less of a story than something that's 10 out of 100. But the key is, to understand and to accept that something isn't 100 out of 100. How do we know that? Think of something that you believe in, whatever it is, an opinion you've got about something. The best way to do this is to ask yourself, does anyone disagree with you? And does anyone, does the person who disagrees with you disagree just because they're being an ignorant arsehole? Or do they disagree and they've got a fairly valid reason to disagree? Do they have a different opinion to you? And if someone has a valid different opinion to you, no matter how much you dislike that opinion, then your belief about whatever it is you're talking about isn't 100% true. It's not 100 out of 100. It's just a story. And that's when, going back to what we've talked about, karate kid training, learning things in all different places and bringing them together, that's when we can start piecing things together because then we can go backwards and go, well, okay, why do I believe what I believe? Where does this come from? I didn't come up with this myself. This has been programmed into me, probably. Can I start taking a step back and really thinking about what is this? What is this story that I'm telling myself about me and story that I'm telling myself about the outside world? Which leads us to a very, very big part of this work. So the stories we tell ourselves 
are twofold. They're stories about us and stories about everybody else and everything we see. And a big part of that for, for the stories we tell ourselves about us is self-awareness. So someone said to me a long time ago in, in my previous life about self-belief, they said, I've never met anyone who has so much self-belief as you do. And I said at the time, it always baffles me that because self-belief tells you what it is. You just need to believe in yourself. That's it. And then when I started doing this work, I realized self-awareness is completely different. I used to walk around saying I was completely self-aware. I listened to people on the internet, on social media, banging on about how self-aware they are. And often when people do that, it's a big red flag that they're not self-aware at all. Because the thing I've learned about self-awareness is, for the most part, in order to be self-aware, you need to ask other people around you what they think of you as well. Because right now, whatever you think of yourself, whatever opinion you have of yourself about who you are, are stories that you're telling yourself. And for the most part, they're based on make-believe. They're based on the programming we've had from the past. Often, and we'll go into this in future episodes, often they're based on things we don't want to admit about ourselves. And this is where this work is different to loads of the personal development and self-help worlds is that we'd, we're not into the whole look at yourself in the mirror and tell yourself how beautiful you are. There is a role of that. You know, the be kind to yourself is an element of that. But this is all about figuring out who we actually are. All of the darkness as well as all of the light, because one of the biggest problems we've got in the world, and more and more so over the as the years progress, I can see now, is that we all focus on the ways in which we're right and everybody else is wrong. And what this work helps us to do is to really look at the ways in which we're like other people. We're like the people we don't like. We, we, there's part of us we just can't see. And it's because of these stories. So self-awareness can't exist in my eyes truly unless you find out from other people. And that's why working with coaches and therapists can really help because they're people who can be honest with you. It might be very hard for people close to you to be honest with you you are likely to have heard things about yourself that people have been honest with you and you've probably just denied or ignored or been defensive about. I certainly did in my old life over time. Usually in arguments in the middle of someone being drunk and shouting something, something at you that you don't like. And we tend to dismiss these things. Part of this work is to truly, and it takes a lot of courage to do this. And everyone I've walked through this path has had to be very brave to do this because it can really destabilize who you think you are in your life. And the beauty of it is once you get through the other side, it's like walking through a dark cave. Through the other side of the dark cave is bright sunshine and it's a, it's a world you might not have thought was possible to achieve. That's what all of this is about, going back to the beginning, helping to build your self-esteem, helping to realize you're good enough. Well, part of that is understanding who you truly are to begin with because otherwise we can never love ourselves properly or know that we're good enough unless we know who we are fully. So a big part of this that I love to talk about is, and something that, that keeps us trapped in the way we think about ourselves and about other people and about the world, is something I love to call the Jordan Henderson effect. So if you are a football fan, if you are a Liverpool FC supporter, you will know who Jordan Henderson is. If you're not a football fan, if you've never heard of Jordan Henderson, you might wonder why I'm talking about him. If you are a football fan, you might be even more confused. What's Jordan Henderson got to do with an episode about the stories we tell ourselves about who we are. So let me let me let me disclose something upfront to begin with. I love Jordan Henderson. I am in love with Jordan Henderson. I have loved him since the moment he 
came to sign for my the football club I support, which is Liverpool, I've always defended him. So I'm biased and that factors into what we're about to talk about. When Jordan Henderson, if you don't know who he is, if you do know, you'll know this already, but if you don't know who he is, Jordan Henderson is a footballer who plays for Liverpool Football Club now, plays for England. He's the captain of Liverpool Football Club. He used to be the captain of England. He's now the vice captain of England. He has won the greatest honours in club football. He's won the English Premier League and he's won the Champions League with Liverpool. He's captained the club to win the Premier League and it hadn't won it for 30 years. So he is now a legend. I think pretty much everybody loves him who supports Liverpool. But that wasn't always the case. When he first signed for the club, opinion on him was very much divided. So you had one camp, which was my camp, which was, we liked him. We thought he was good. He was a young player. He had a lot of potential. People, every club he'd been at before us, he'd always captained. Every age group he'd been in, people who behind the scenes in football talked very highly of him as a character and as a player. Then there was another group and the other group said he was shit. That's it. Like no, nothing more than that. He was just shit. Nothing good enough. Nothing was ever good enough. And we used to end up in these arguments. And I say we, I used to end up in these arguments with people who were on the other side of the fence. And think about this as an analogy for general life these days as well. And I remember once having a conversation with someone who's a very intelligent, funny, articulate person, also a Liverpool supporter. And he said to me, Jordan Henderson's shit. And he said a line that used to follow Henderson around in with the people who criticised him. He said he never passes the ball forward. And if you're not a football fan, Jordan Henderson plays central midfield. And that is a huge criticism of someone who plays central midfield in football. Never passes the ball forward. And I said to this guy, when you say he never passes the ball forward, you must mean he doesn't pass it forward as much as you would like him to. And he said, no, he never, and we'll talk about this a bit more in a few minutes, never, that's the word he used, never passes the ball forward. And it was such a ridiculous argument for him to make. I didn't even need to say anything else. I just took my phone out of my pocket. I got YouTube out and I searched Jordan Henderson passes. And there are so many Jordan Henderson forward passes that there are multiple, multiple compilation videos of these incredible passes that he was playing during his Liverpool career. And I showed it to this person and they said to me, well, when are they from? They must be from years ago. And I said, no, that's like the last six months. They're the passes he's made in the last six months. And the point of telling you this story is the Jordan Henderson effect is the name I give to a phenomenon that affects all of our lives. It's one of the, it's one of the real plagues on society. The technical term for it is confirmation bias. So what happens is when we tell ourselves a story about what we believe about us, what we believe about other people, what we believe about the world, the little control deck in our head I, there are lots of technical words for this and there's lots of scientific stuff behind it. As you probably know by now, if you've watched me before or listened to me before, we like to steer clear of that. The way I like to think of it is one of the people in the control deck in your head has got a job and their job is to just show you things that confirm what you already believe is true. I call the person who does that job in my head, Sandra. Sandra, and she's the she or whoever does the job in your head, they're the very particular type of employee they are very keen to do a very good job. So not only do they find everything that proves you're already right and show you that, they go a step further. They block out everything that proves you to be wrong. 
So whatever you think of to begin with as a story, wherever that's come from, Sandra gets involved and she goes, I'll, I'll prove you to be right. And where that leads to, hence the Jordan Henderson effect, is, and think about this if you're a sports fan, this happens, we are all guilty of this in different aspects. It takes a lot to break free from it. Even after all the work I've done, I find myself having to, to work really hard to break out of this. Is that the person I was speaking to, they would watch Liverpool regularly. And this is such a powerful psychological effect that every time they saw Jordan Henderson pay, pass the ball forward, the control deck in their head would ignore that information. They just couldn't see it. They just wouldn't see it. Every time they saw Jordan Henderson pass the ball backwards, their brain would go and the control deck, Sandra in my head, would say, see, you're right. Look at that, passes the ball backwards. I've had this conversation with different players and different things in different games, Liverpool teams over the years. It's massive in sport. It's a, re it's a really interesting way to approach it in sport because we can, it's, a, it's a less damaging, you know, it's sports, sport. It's very important to many of us and many people in the world, but it's not life or death. So when, when we look at it in sport, we can be a bit more, hold the opinions loosely, try and maybe start there and say, hang on, is what I think about this player right? Is what I think about this football team right? This sports team, whoever, whatever it is you like to watch. It's absolutely crucial and it's a crucial part of this work. If I could, again, with other stuff we've talked about, if I could click my fingers and give the whole world a gift I would take away black and white thinking and I would take away confirmation bias from operating in our brains. Because if we could do that, we would all be able to be much more open-minded about the world we see and what we think of ourselves and other people, which would help us, especially in the world in which we live now. So where does this take us to? The next step out of all of this, which keeps us locked in where we are, ties back to what we were saying before, is that we've got all of these other things going on. We've got the stories, we've got the Jordan Henderson effect, confirmation bias. And then what we end up with is what I call loaded labels. So we end up putting a sticker on everything. And the stories we tell, tell ourselves are all of this, if it's all uh, exists in this mass mess, the loaded labels we then come up with keeps them nicely packed in a little jar and puts a lid on it. So we know exactly where it should go. And the problem with that is once we put things in the labels, it makes it much easier for the control deck in our head, for that, for Sandra, for me, to keep things nicely compartmentalized. So what we end up with that is, going back to something we said before about black and white thinking, right or left-wing politics, Labour or Conservative, Republican or Democrat, black or white, good or bad, gay or straight, and whatever you think of in life, whatever whatever opinion you've got, even football supporting, it's this or this. We end up one of the one of the biggest things we end up with, which is a danger for all of us in all of our lives, is some people are goodies and some people are baddies. I I saw it last year as I was I was starting to think about the book and doing a lot of this work. There was even a podcast came out in the UK called Evil or Genius, and people would sit down and debate all of these great figures from the past. And what they would have to do at the end of the show is decide whether the person was evil or was a genius. It had to be one of those labels. It had to be black or white. And they would talk about Gandhi and Mother Teresa and John Lennon and Hitler. And at the end, and it was, the argument was, it was, you could see the people clearly saying it has to be one or the other. And this is a perfect example of 
where scale thinking comes in because it's not true. The, all of the people I just mentioned in that list, they were all a bit of both as we all are. We are all sometimes goodies and all sometimes baddies. We just don't like to admit it. We'd, I've got all kinds of stories I could tell you about this. One, a very poignant one that came up the other day. I was talking to someone. I met a guy a, f a few years ago now who was a gardener in a house I was staying in in Northern Cyprus. And he was from Pakistan. Really well-educated, articulate, lovely to talk to. The people who own the house, who I was looking after the house with my ex-wife, they said, you should speak to the, I can't remember his name either, but you should speak to the gardener. You'll really enjoy his company. And I'd sit down and chat to him. And he was telling me that when he was growing up, the the people in his school, the children in his school, uh, they were the Taliban would come in and talk to them about joining the Taliban. And I was like, that is insane. God, is that like, you know, it was like brainwashing because that's what we're led to believe in this country and in the Western world, in the UK, in the US. And he said, no, he said, we wanted to join. And I went, what do you mean? And he said, you think you're the goodies. He said, but you drop bombs on people and you kill their mums and dads. He said, you create orphans, you kill families, you're the baddies. He said, so when we get to a chance to fight against the baddies, we want to join up. Just like your people want to join up and join armies and because you're told that you're the goodies and we're the baddies. And it blew my mind and I've, and I've looked at that ever since. People, nobody ever thinks, and this is, this is even going back to a very, very, very dark example. It, we were all, we're all brought up to believe that Hitler and the Nazis were the baddies as if they believed they were the baddies as well, but they didn't. They didn't think they were the baddies. They thought they were the goodies. They thought we were the baddies. And the, the reality is, I remember someone teaching me this many, many years ago, probably in school. The reality is whoever wins anything, wars especially writes history so of course they write themselves as the goodies and one of the that is a, obviously a big issue like a worldwide issue we are seeing this right now in the middle of a, a worldwide pandemic there are there are groups that think they are the goodies and they think the other side are the baddies guess what the other group thinks the opposite the other group thinks they're the goodies and the other side are the baddies and we do it in our day-to-day -day lives so we mainly, we consider ourselves to be one of the goodies and we consider other people to be the baddies, no matter what it is, whether it's in a relationship with your boss at work, with employees, with a romantic relationship, with your family, with your kids, with your parents, we think we're right and they're wrong. And this ties into all of the work we do. This is where it all starts coming together. It's all built in my view, in my interpretation of all of this on low self-worth. And low self-worth means your ego grows. And as your ego grows, all of this becomes a bigger thing because we're not prepared to look at ourselves properly and say, hang on, where am I a baddie? In which way am I wrong? And by doing this type of work, counterintuitively, massively counterintuitively, it helps us find peace in the world because where it leads to is we accept ourselves more. We accept other people around us more. We accept the world more. We don't look at other people anymore and think they're all the baddies. We understand them better than we ever did before. It's huge. Big part of this is the language we use, language we use about ourselves and others. Again, ties into other stuff we've done. So we will say things about ourselves. We will say, I am, I am. I'm one of my favorite ones is the number of people I th who will say, I'm really laid back. And I used to do the same thing. And I would say 
out of 100 people who tell me they're really laid back aren't. It's just the story they tell themselves. But the work we do and the work we've done on multiple personalities that we've talked about in the past, if you haven't watched that episode or listened to that episode, go back and listen to it. I'll link to it at the end. When we, when we can start seeing ourselves as more than one person, actually what that frees us up to say is to be more fluid in how we think of ourselves. We can say, well, sometimes I am laid back, but sometimes I'm actually really intense. Sometimes I'm a pain in the arse. The, the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and the language we use around that, massive. Other things like red flags to look out for when we use language like always or never, we will say that, especially if we're, you know, if we're talking about other people, the baddies, you think about our arguments you've ever had with a romantic partner, with your parents, with your kids. You might say, you always do that. Think about the story I told earlier. You, he never passes the ball forward. Whenever that, those types of words even come to, to my mind now, or I feel myself saying them, I've trained myself over time to think, is it true though? Is it always? Because always is a hundred out of a hundred on the scale, remember? Or are there any examples of times it wasn't, that didn't happen, whatever we're talking about? Does that group always do that thing? Does my wife or my husband always do that thing? Generally speaking, the answer is no, they don't. And as soon as we can go, oh, it's not always, we know it's not a hundred out of a hundred on the scale. Well, now we know it's a story we're telling ourselves. Now we know this is where it all joins together. Now we know it's probably our brain, our control deck, Sandra for me, picking out all of the ways in which I believe this story to be true. So she's showing me all of the ways it is true. And I have to make a conscious effort to look at all of the ways it's not true because that's how I find peace. That's how I find contentment. If you want to have a happier relationship, romantic relationships, this is absolutely crucial. I see it all the time. Last part of this that's worth talking about before we wrap up <laughs> comes back to maths where we started which is a line my further maths teacher taught me at A-level, which I loved and will always remember. He was the first person to ever teach me about this. It's a Benjamin Disraeli line. There are three types of lies. There are lies, damn lies, and statistics. And once you've studied, I'm in a very unusual position in my life because I studied maths and science and statistics to a fairly high level until I was 18. Then I became a lawyer. So learned how to analyze information in a certain way. And then I started doing this. So I started specializing in human behavior and psychology and emotion. So I have a fairly unusual way of looking at things that happen in the world. When you understand statistics properly, it can completely change your life. So again, the world we live in now the number of times I see the use of st statistics to support anything. I often say, and that line sums it up, lies, damn lies, and statistics. You give me something you want me to prove true, I, I, we can find statistics that will prove it. And often it's about the stories that we put around statistics. So an example I like to give that's in the book is, I remember when I lived in London many years ago, and the, the free paper that you would get every day at the time, there was a headline, and it said outrage, commuter outrage, something like that. Commuter outrage as 90% of, only 90% only of trains run on time. And everybody was furious. Everybody was up in arms. It's a disgrace. It's awful. And I remember at the time thinking, I wonder what difference it would have made if the headline had been changed to celebration as 90% of trains run on time. Because the reality was the article itself, nobody I spoke to knew 
whether 90% of trains running on time was a good or a bad thing. There was no basis for comparison. And we do this throughout our lives. So we basically just go off the stories that are around it, whatever. The, and who knows? I don't know whether 90% of trains on time is a good or a bad thing or, a, you know, a, a successful achievement for a company running a train line. That's not the point. The point is when we see statistics, we create stories around them. And often it, it's not conducive to us living a good life. So this ties into our lives all over the place. I'll give you two quick ones. We, we will tell ourselves stories that, for example, if we go for a job interview, we should get that job interview. It's, it ties into something we've talked about in the past, which is perfectionism. And we don't realize this. This is like stealth perfectionism. When we think we should be successful in every job interview we go for, or if we go out on a date with someone and we think that person should be the next person we marry, or we get married and we think that marriage should be should be successful or we think something we do in work should always work or we should go for a test and we should pass the test what we're actually saying silently without realizing it which always also ties into the stories we tell ourselves is we're telling ourselves we should have a hundred percent success rate 100 percent. that's what perfectionism is that's what one out of one in a job interview is but we don't look at it like that and the way I look at it now, when you break it down into, into statistics, there's loads of ways you can look at that. This, I found a new one a couple of weeks ago, which I loved. Lionel Messi, one of the greatest footballers of all time. And I saw this, Cristiano Ronaldo has got a very similar percentage to this. Have a think before I say it. If you're a football fan, if you're a sports fan, how many shots do you think they need to take before they score a goal? These are two of the greatest goal scorers of all time. Of billions of people who've ever played football, two of the greatest to ever play the game. Think to yourself before I say what's next. How many shots do you think they need to have before they score? Bear in mind, without realizing it, throughout your life, you think you should have a 100% success rate, which would mean every shot they take, they score a goal. What do you think it is? Is it one in two? Is it one in three? It's really about one in six, one in seven. So their success rate in what they do in their life to make them the best of all time is about 16%. And yet in our own life, when we go to do something without thinking about it, the story we tell ourselves is that we should have a 100% success rate. Another stat in the sports realm, which I love sports analogies, I saw the other week that the greatest, some, again, some of the greatest ten tennis players of all time, currently Roger Federer, uh, Djokovic and uh, Nadal, how many points do you think they win on average? Like across, across their career, how many points have they won? To be the greatest tennis players or some of the greatest players of all time, the greatest players of their generation. What do you think it is? Again, think we, we think we should be, we should get things right a hundred percent of the time to be the greatest tennis players of a generation. They're around 54%. They win about 54% of their points. Does that surprise you? Does that shock you? The what I'll give you one last story that I love from the past before we round up. And that is, I was, when I first started, doing business coaching years ago. I started working with a great guy, really, really good coach. And I shadowed him for a bit and he took me to see some of his clients. And he told me a story. He said once he was asked to come to a call center and help them because their morale was rock bottom. It was rubbish. Like the, the job that the people in the call center had to do was rubbish. It was cold calling. So if you don't know what that is, basically phoning people 
who aren't expecting the phone call and trying to sell them something, which I've done a bit of that in the past. It is, just think about it logically. You basically, you work for a company that sells furniture. You phone someone who answers the phone. They're not thinking about buying furniture and you've got to get them from that position to buying something off you. It's one of the most difficult jobs on the planet. So morale was really low because there's lots of rejection. When you're phoning people, you're getting lots of rejection. And this guy, Gary, his name was, went to the company. They said, can you help? He said, yeah. He said, tell me about it. They told him all of these stories. And he said, is anyone here happy? Like, does anyone work here who's happy? And they said, yeah, actually, Jimmy in the corner is happy. And he said, okay, let me speak to Jimmy. So we went over to Jimmy and he said to him, what's the score, Jimmy? Tell, tell me all about it. Why are you happy? And he said, well, it's dead basic. He said, I know statistically that if I make my phone calls all day, if I follow the script, if I do what I've been told, we know the data in this in this call center, we know that we sell one in 10. So we make if we make 10 phone calls, we sell one item and we get nine rejections. And my target is to sell 10 things every day. And Gary was like, well, okay. Well, but everyone else knows that. And he went, yeah. He said, so what, what's the difference? And he said, well, he said, I know that to sell 10, I have to make a hundred calls. And if I make a hundred calls statistically on average, I will sell 10 because I sell, I sell to one in 10 people I speak to. And Gary said, yeah, everyone knows that as well. He said, yeah, everyone knows that as well. What's the difference? He said, well, I know that when I make a hundred calls, I'll get 10 sales, which is great. But I also know before I start, I'm going to get 90 rejections. The difference between me and everybody else is when I get a rejection, I celebrate it. I keep a, a, a bar chart on my paper in front of me as I'm making my calls and I tick off every single rejection. He said, because I'm chasing rejections. He said, I can't get 10 sales without getting 90 rejections. That's just what the data tells me. I have to fail 90 times to succeed 10 times. The difference between me and everybody else is that I see the, I see the rejections and the failures as part of the process to success. It's the only way it can happen. Everybody else, every time they get a rejection, they let it hurt them. They think it's about them. They get down. He says it's absolutely normal. Tie that into the, into the football world. I can show you a whole host of footballers and the most su successful ones, the Messi's, the Ronaldo's, for Liverpool fans, Mo Salah, if you like him, watch his face when he misses a chance. He usually smiles. Why? Because to be the best player on the planet, you need to score one out of every seven shots you have. Guess what? That means you're missing six out of seven. Six out of seven. You're missing the vast majority of shots you take. And yet in the lives we live, we tell ourselves stories that if we go for one job interview and we don't get it, we're a failure. We don't even look at the statistics. It's probably off the top of my head. Let's say it's something like one in 10 on average job interviews you go for. Well, if you use the Jimmy the Call Center analogy, if you use the football analogy, the tennis analogy, you should be looking at going, right, well, I need to go for 10 interviews and I'll get one job. And if I get nine rejections, I can still get the last job from the last interview and it's still just average. That's fine. If I get one out of one, I'm a superstar. But that's not the way we look at it because we tell ourselves these stories. We think in black and white terms. We have confirmation bias. And the stories are what makes our lives miserable. Instead of going, that's just the way it is. 
That's just the data. That's just the statistics. We just need to look at it in a different way. As I say, this ties into everything else we do. This is a big part of it, but it really helps to tie into the other parts, the emotional acceptance, the multiple personality work, something we're going to go on to about shadow work in, an, in a couple of episodes. That's it. We'll leave it there. As always, there's way more detail in the book. This is a, an, an overview that I like to share with you for free. If you want to get the book, you can still get the free chapters. Uh, go to paul7cope.com slash free chapters. There'll be a link below the episode. That's it. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with someone you think would like it. If you've got any questions, send them to questions at paul7cope.com. See you next time.